This is Prairie Miller, and on the show. In the Arts News Culture Wars episode this week, hey, mass movements work. What's up with the new French security bill to punish both the press and street reporters with a year in prison for filming and sharing images of police torturing and murdering victims, following pretty much a mass uprising against the law, including setting fire to the Central Bank of France the government backed down and removed that section of the law. What's it all about, and what are the implications? Arts Express correspondent Dennis Bro, on location in Paris, reports for us on what's going down there on the streets of Paris. Cameron, nous allons maintenant partir en manifestation en direction la cour des 50 otages. This is Bro on the Euro Cultural Beat Breaking Glass. Today's episode Shooting the Messenger, especially the messenger who's filming you. Against a backdrop of street protest, even in the midst of a COVID lockdown and increasing police violence and repression, France passed the draconian global security law, which could make it an offense punishable by a year in jail and a 45,000 euro fine to film, post, and identify police officers committing violent actions. The members of President Emmanuel Macron's LRM party, whose title La République en Marche, claims that they are concerned about rights and liberties, watch the films of the police brutally rousting homeless from République, the square commemorating these rights. They voted in favor of the law, claiming that there was no contradiction between the two events. Even the Minister of the Interior, Gérald Darmanin, in charge of police intervention, pronounced the use of force in this case shocking, while Macron's own former speechwriter termed the sequence hypocrisy without end. The event began with police roughly dismantling a homeless encampment at République, an event that was filmed by activists and widely broadcast. Militant defenders of the homeless then marched to Hotel de Ville, the Paris City Hall, in protest and were dispersed by police using tear gas. Also gassed and picked out as a target by police was a web journalist, Remy Boussin, whose internet site Brew, or Raw, has often featured police beatings, including those in République in 2016 of the movement Nuit Debout, or Up All Night, and Gilets Jaunes, the people's movement protesting the disenfranchisement of rural and peripheral areas. At the Trocadero, across from the Eiffel Tower, on the weekend, before the global security law was voted on, French journalists spoke out at a rally claiming they were now vulnerable to jail and fines for simply covering demonstrations. The law comes in the wake of a widely praised film titled A Country Which Counts Itself Wise on Police Violence. The film opens with footage of a police lead ball hitting a gilet jaune in the eye and knocking him to the ground. We then see him with a patch over the eye, which he has lost, commenting on the footage. The film consists of historians and sociologists asking why state violence is encouraged and pointing out that the gassing and beating of the gilet jaune, which has driven their protests out of the cities and stifled the movement, is done mainly by the national police force, reporting only to the Minister of Defense divorced from any local contact and separate from municipal police who must work on the terrain. The film is made up of mostly cell phone footage of police and demonstrator interaction and has been singled out by French critics for bringing a new vividness and a new style of shooting to the documentary. The director, David Dufresne, describes the way, quote, the electronic eye enlarges the battle for truth. Under the new law, the film could not have existed. Police violence has increased under Macron. Official police statistics from last June identify the police as having wounded 2,448 marchers, having fired 19,071 lead balls or LBDs, and released 1,428 tear gas grenades. The effects of these weapons are documented by the website Allo Place Bouveau, named for the site of the French Interior Ministry, which counts 344 head wounds, 29 eye gougings, and five mangled hands. The use of LBDs in particular has been condemned by the European Council and the United Nations Council on Human Rights, condemnations ignored by the current and past interior minister. 
The woundings are the result also of a recent policy of direct engagement with demonstrators, where the police, instead of as before attempting to patrol the fringes of the march, now wade into the center and begin contesting those on the street. The background to this increased contestation is the rampant inequality in both the suburbs or Bonlieu and the rural areas outside the global cities. The worsening of air pollution within the cities, which has brought the Greens to power in many of them, including Marseille, Bordeaux, and Lyon, and the continued decline of small shopkeepers exacerbated by the COVID crisis. The country is known for its recalcitrant and battling working class and for the proclivity of its citizens to take to the streets to contest injustice, as was seen in the breaking of the COVID restrictions Saturday, to protest against what the French are calling liberticide, the stripping away and systematic destruction of their rights. Macron, the Rothschild banker who came to power in 2017, was elected as a defender of liberties and bulwark against Marine Le Pen and the far-right National Front. Once in power, he began a merciless Reagan-Thatcher-type neoliberal attack on working people, attempting to tame the French railroad unions by privatizing the railways, continuing to make it easier for employers to fire workers, and attacking the safeguards built up over years in the French pension system, all of which provoked massive resistance and protest. He represented himself as an ally of the environmentalists, but the Green Party turned against Elrem and instead made alliances with the often divided parties of the left in several major cities to win this year's municipal elections. Since that moment, Macron, recognizing that the left is no longer amenable to his message, has tilted not only right toward the Republicans, but also increasingly to the far right, setting himself up to take votes from both in his 2022 bid for re-election. The global security law is part of that right and far-right tilt, and it remains to be seen whether the majority of the French population will accept this trampling of the Enlightenment values of free speech and liberty of expression. Currently, four court cases hinge on citizen recordings of police violence, and if that right is denied, there will be few safeguards on a police force let loose on the populace. This is Bro Breaking Glass and signing off from war-torn Paris. And next up on Arts Express, actor Timothy Bottoms famed for his starring roles in The Last Picture Show and the Hollywood Tens blacklisted Dalton Trumbo's Page to Screen, Johnny Got His Gun, phones in to talk about that and more, including his current portrayal in the environmental horror movie Tar, which, strangely, he has yet to see. And just as strange, our exchange takes on a kind of conversation war, touching on that just-mentioned kind of energy revenge of the La Brea tar pits, even as Bottoms phones in from his nearly destroyed land up in Big Sur, California, in a different horror as ecological victim of global warming. First, on a lighter note, Bottoms in his one of numerous incarnations of George Bush, which he'll be talking about in the Crocodile Hunter Collision Course. You mean that guy in the khaki shorts? That dude on the Discovery Channel? I don't care if you have to send in the Marines, the Air Force, the Rangers, just pick up that ball. Woo-hoo! Crikey! Hello. Good morning. Hi, and welcome to the show. The show? Yeah. Okay. Good morning. <laughs> All right. You sound very tired. It's very early there. <laughs> no, I'm fine there. <laughs> okay. What got you interested in TAR and being part of this story? I suppose it was the uh, the director and writer, uh, one of the writers, a uh, Aaron uh, Wolf. Uh, really wanted me to be part of it. Now, beneath this horror thriller, there's also an environmental subtext. What are your thoughts about that? They haven't shown it. He hasn't shown it to me. Or shown uh-huh. it. I, haven't seen, I haven't seen one clip. And uh-huh. it was done six years ago. Wow. <laughs> so I, I really, um, I don't know what they put together. I never saw a full script. Um, I was there for two weeks, I think, um, in, a, in a building on Wilshire Boulevard. And I don't recall anything environmental. I guess, I guess the goo, you know. Yeah. 
the, the, the black goo coming. But my dad wrote a book about that uh, when the oil spill happened in Santa Barbara in 1969. We called mm. it the goo monster. So it's just similarity to that. And Tar is also multi-generational, a multi-generational story, and how generations interact, conflict, and change over time, especially, you know, in your role, which you wouldn't have to see the movie to know that. What can you say about that and your own character, Barry Greenwood, playing out as part of that? Hmm. I mean, you're interacting with these younger actors that have, they have a different perspective than you do from your generation in the story. Yeah, uh, and about life, I think, just in general. Um, I never got to know any of those people. I don't know why they didn't show me the film before we talked. I know, that would help. I mean, I can answer your questions, but I'm not going to probably give you the answers because I don't remember. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I can ask you some. I, I can ask you some other questions, which are also from the past, but maybe there's better recollection. Well, uh, I just went through a huge forest fire. Right. Um, yeah, you're up in Big Sur, aren't you? Yeah, I've been up there 45 years, mm. and I've been through four big fires. Talk about a monster. Mm. Uh oh. Uh, yeah. No, I'm still very much traumatized. We lost two horses and countless amounts. Of Wildlife. Um, the Forest Service station there was incinerated, sent three to the hospital. The other one, the Forest Service ranch, was completely decimated. And we were the only survivors. Mm. Um, for real. Yeah. Not, you know, on a uh, red camera in a, in a house with a bunch of kids running around making movies. So, um, well, let me ask you some other questions. What did it mean? Know, what did it mean to you to be the tragic center of the anti-war film, Johnny Got His Gun, and being directed by Dalton Trumbo, one of the Hollywood Ten? Johnny Got His Gun, yes. That was my first big shot at movies. And I got to live with Dalton oh. family for about four or five months. Each man faces death by himself. One part of his brain that has escaped damage is the medulla oblongata. It is impossible for a decelebrated individual to experience memory, dreams, or thought. What happened? Where am I? Mother, where are you? Help me, Mother. I'm having a nightmare and I can't wake up. Didn't you say, Captain, that it's worth a year of any doctor's life to observe a case like this? How can you tell what's a dream and what's real when you can't even tell when you're awake and when you're asleep? <laughs> Just like a piece of meat that keeps on living. Gonna make the world safe for democracy, aren't you? So many dead men, you wouldn't believe it. What is democracy? For democracy, any man would give his only begotten son. It's really just part of this big machine. It's all about ammunition and beans, man. Who's running the policy and why are they running the policy? Just is making money. Oh, God. Please make them hear me. It's Morse code. For what? SOS. Help. Since your real life is a greater nightmare than your dreams, it would be cruel to pretend that anyone could help you. It's been going on with us for a long time. Somebody once said that the history of a country is the history of its wars. Another man said that war is stupid, wasteful, vicious, and self-defeating. And the third man said, let's put an end to war. In 1914 began the most destructive war the world has ever known. A war to end all wars. Four years later, with a continent devastated and millions dead, it was over. The great struggle had ended. 
Dalton Trumbo's Johnny Got His Gun is not the story of the 80 million who have died, but of one man who survived. The story of a man who fought the war to end all wars. The war which would make the world safe for democracy. See it. It may change your life. Dalton wanted... I didn't understand why I got the part. But he told me later uh, that I got the part because he wanted to watch a young man turn into a man during the period of shooting. And he felt that most of the other actors that were down there, Peter Fonda, David Soule, Tony Geary, these guys were already too old. And they weren't innocent enough. And I think that's why I got the part. Um, and of course, it was at the height of the Vietnam. Yeah. And um, I come from a family of warriors, and I decided that I was not going to be one of them. And so there was a bit of a falling out amongst my family. My grandfather was United States Army, World War One. My uncle, my dad, Navy, uh, in the South Pacific, and uh, I just—that's not for me. There must be something else I can do. And I got this job in the movie, <laughs> uh, and I got to play a soldier. And I got to make my statement, my personal statement, which I believe was, you know, nobody wins in these things. Now, you also played George Bush three times. Was that by design or coincidence? And how did that come about? Three times? Uh, twice, I think. I think I did it only twice. I, I played him in a Comedy Central series for Trey Parker and Matt Stone. And then I did a uh, thing uh, for, uh, let's see, the cable company. I have That's My Bush, DC 9-11, Time of Crisis, and The Crocodile Hunter, Collision Course. Oh, that was just a joke. Yeah, but that was was different. That that was not... uh, They were asking me to mimic him, not try to be him. Along the lines of, that's my bush. Whereas in DC 9-11, we took all of the footage from the crisis and just uh, recreated it for entertainment. And why, what led you to play Bush more than once? <laughs> uh, the offer, and I get my, I was told I resembled him. In fact, when <laughs> Trey Parker was looking for a character. He was going through uh, the Hollywood Reporter, and uh, I had done a picture with Kim Hunter. Kim Hunter had called me, and uh, she still had it. She won the Academy Award for Streetcar Named Desire, Marlon Brando. Do you remember Kim Hunter? Mm, yeah. Yeah, wonderful actress. New York lady, stage actress, real strong woman. And so we did this film about Alzheimer's. And uh, we were trying to sell it, and there was a small photograph of me. And he said, "What is George Bush doing in Hollywood Reporter?" <laughs> and so that's how I received that call. And with Johnny Got His Gun, The Last Picture Show, and other films, you were very much a part of the Hollywood Renaissance of the '70s. What can you say about the impact and significance of that period, and for you? Oh, well, it was a wonderful time. I was a kid, and I got to see a lot of the legends of the screen, which I idolized. I loved the world that we created in the movies, and I loved all the aspects of it, all the people involved. There's so many people, including you, Prairie. (laughs) Uh, It was very much a part of the motion picture business because... You get to see them and talk about them. But they, the whole filmmaking community 
is one of the most wonderful communities that we have in this country. Mm. It creates so many wonderful things, and it's it's not alive anymore. It's changed, so everything's become, oh, I don't know. The imagination seems to be missing. Mm. The, the scope, the uh, emotion, the, the big screen. <laughs> the big screen. But you know what's <laughs> great about the time right now? Yeah. And what Aaron told me is that this film was being shown in drive-in theaters. Mm. And I just love drive-in theaters. <laughs> it's a wonderful have you, have you been to a big drive-in theater? No, I'm here in New York. Most of us don't have cars. <laughs> right. Well, you know what they do sometimes? They throw them up on these big buildings. You can ah. all stand in a in an avenue and watch a film on a big building. I've seen wonderful art in New York. But there's yeah. nothing like going to a drive-in, particularly out in a town in a prairie. <laughs> prairie. <laughs> prairie towns are great for them because, hmm. you know, it's just bigger. You can get yourself lost in the screen. And that's, I think, what was we've lost. Yeah. We really lost a lot during this time. So sad. Everybody's on these little screens. And the last picture show, your breakout role, which came out the same year as Johnny Got His Gun. Correct. What, what did that movie and that story mean to you then? And what does it mean to you now revisiting the film? Can't I doubtful mind and melt your cold, cold heart. Tony Bennett's cold, cold heart was on everybody's hit parade. Elizabeth Taylor was getting married. Boys wore duck tails. The police action in the Far East was Korea. And Anarene, Texas, like other small towns, is approaching the end of an era. Enough to be women. You boys can get on out of here. I don't want to have no more to do with you. I've been around that trashy behavior all my life. I'm getting tired of putting up with it. So long, buddy. So long, buddy. Be careful. I'll take care of the mercury for you. I'll see you in a year or two if I don't get shot. You wouldn't believe how this country's changed. I reckon the reason why I always drag you out here is probably I'm just as sentimental as the next fella when it comes to old times. Old times. Anarene, Texas, 1951. Nothing much has changed. Yes, it was back-to-back, non-stop films for nine months, seven days a week work for me, but I was young, 19 years old. Yeah. I had aspired to be a theater actor, and um, I spent a lot of time in the theater, but the movies were a way of uh, making some money and acting so I could go to a theater school, but I never did. Hmm. It just, I got swept up in the circus, and the last picture show, uh, was like being shot out of a a mortar at a 4th of July where you just, you have no idea what you've done, but as it catches hold and people start talking about it and, and are affected by it, you're catapulted up into space and then just, you get this, you're showered with applause. Mm-hmm. But from a distance, not, not, immediate from the theater, which I missed. But it was exhilarating, and, and it was a really fun ride. I had a great ride. I'll always love Hollywood for that. Yeah. It was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. I got to go all over the world, see all kinds of wonderful people, to act in some really interesting movies. And I think we have time for one more question. Are you up to anything next? Um, well, yeah, there's... Um, there's little things that are possible, I suppose, but we're in a very dark time right now. Yeah, especially for you. Yeah. Well, 
I think the fire kind of hit pretty hard, uh, you know. But I was actually in in one. And it was just my two sons and I and a Chumash uh, Native American firefighter from San Ynez. The United States Forest Service pulled out, evacuated 23 people, and they just left us. Uh, we persevered, and uh, the dragon spared us our lives. Not one of us was burned. No. Uh, so I'm very thankful to that. Yeah. <laughs> In an ancient adobe home, 250 years old, that hadn't been burned in the last 250 years. Mm. And it was built in the right place. We're building places where we shouldn't be. Uh, we're not pre prepared for the uh, the elements of water, fire, and wind that are yeah. We're being spanked right now by Mother Nature. Let me put it that <laughs> way. All over the world. She is spanking everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm so thankful for the opportunity with Tar. I had, I'm so excited. I can't wait to see it. And Aaron is such a good heart. He has such a good heart. He's such a good young man. Yeah. You know, and, and Tim Nuttall is, uh, deserves a lot of praise, too, because he was right there doing everything. Anyway, I have hope, but when you work with young people like that, you see the excitement you want to help, because that's our job. Yeah. So you know, is to pass on the excitement and to pass on the values and the morals and of life that we learn, mm. you know, what to take with us from the past into the future and what to shed as we move forward, handing the torch on to these, this next group of young people yeah. try to protect them as they go. Okay, well, yeah. thank you so much, Timothy Bottoms, for calling into our show. Prairie, it's <laughs> a pleasure meeting you, and, and I, I wish all for the best for everyone. Yeah. We, we really need to get back to a sense of values, and I guess we could start with the Constitution of the United States. <laughs> That's about the best groundwork we have. I hope that materializes. Yeah. Okay, thank you again, and bye. All right. Bye, have a pleasant day. Bye. And Tor is out now in virtual theaters. You're listening to Arts Express, and I want to send a shout out to all you guys doing time and anybody that's in the pen. Hey, God bless you guys. Don't forget, man. You know, just keep stepping. When I got out of prison, I, I had to like change my attitude. I had to like do whatever I could to help other people. So when I got out, I made it my my life. I dedicated my life to helping other people, and I have to say that everything good that has happened to me has happened as a direct result of helping someone else. And that's the way I live my life. I think that's the fascination, because a lot of people still perceive me as this badass, mean guy that wouldn't cross the street to save a puppy. Awesome. Listening to Arts Express, and coming up next on the show, in the radio drama corner. No, this is not one of my hungry days. I find so many who will give me nothing that when I get the offer of a meal, I always eat whether I'm hungry or not. The Unfortunate Man, 
written by Harriet Caswell in 1872, a very different time when it comes to the mass economic misery in this country. Or is it? Let's give a listen. On a sultry afternoon in midsummer, I was walking on a lonely, unfrequented road in the township of S. My mind was busily occupied, and I paid little attention to surrounding objects till a hollow, unnatural voice addressed me, saying, Look up, my friend, and behold the unfortunate man. I raised my eyes suddenly, and verily, the appearance of the being before me justified his self-bestowed appellation, the unfortunate man. I will do my best to describe him, although I am satisfied that my description will fall far short of the reality. He was uncommonly tall, and one thing which added much to the oddity of his appearance was the inequality of length in his legs, one being shorter by several inches than the other. And to make up for the deficiency, he wore on the short leg a boot, with a very high heel. He seemed to be past middle age. His complexion was sallow and unhealthy. He was squint-eyed and his hair, which had once been of a, a reddish hue, was then a grisly gray. Taken altogether, he was a strange looking object and I soon perceived that his mind wandered. At first I felt inclined to hurry onward as quickly as possible, but as he seemed harmless and inclined to talk to me, I lingered for a few moments to listen to him. I do not wonder, said he, that you look upon me with pity, for it is a sad thing for one to be crazy. Surprised to find him so sensible of his own situation, I said, as you seem so well aware that you are crazy, Perhaps you can inform me what caused you to become so? Oh yes, replied he. I can soon tell you that. First my father died. Then my mother. And soon after my only sister hung herself to the limb of a tree with a skein of worsted yarn. And last and worst of all, my wife Dorcas Jane drowned herself in Otter Creek. Wondering if there was any truth in this horrible story, or if it was only the creation of his own diseased mind, I said, merely to see what he would say next, what caused your wife to drown herself? Was she crazy too? Oh no, replied he. She was not crazy, but she was worse than that, for she was jealous of me, although I'm sure she had no cause. The idea of anyone being jealous of the being before me was so ridiculous that it was with the utmost difficulty that I refrained from laughter. But fearing to offend the crazy man, I maintained my gravity by a strong effort. When he had finished the story of his misfortunes, he came close to me and said, in slow, measured tones, And now, do you think it any wonder that I went raving, distracted, crazy? Indeed I do not, said I. Many a one has gone crazy for less cause. Thinking he might be hungry, I told him I would direct him to a farmhouse, where he would be sure to obtain his supper. No, replied he, this is not one of my hungry days. I find so many who will give me nothing to eat, that when I get the offer of a meal, I always eat whether I am hungry or not. And I have been in luck today, for I have eaten five meals since morning, and now I must lose no more time, 
for I have important business with the Governor of Canada and must reach Quebec tomorrow. I regarded the poor crazy being with a feeling of pity as he walked wearily onward. And even the high-heeled boot did not conceal a painful limp in his gait. But I had not seen the last of him yet. Some six months after, as I was visiting a friend who lived several miles distant, who should walk in about eight o'clock in the evening, but the unfortunate man. There had been a slight shower of rain, but not enough to account for the drenched state of his clothing. How did you get so wet? inquired Mr. Oh, replied he. I was crossing a brook upon a log and I slipped off into the water and it rained on me at the same time and between the two, I got a pretty smart duckin'. They brought him some dry clothing and dried his wet garments by the kitchen fire and kindly allowed him to remain for the night. For several years, this man passed through S as often as two or three times during each year. He became so well known in the vicinity that anyone freely gave him a meal or a night's lodging as often as he sought it. Every time he came along, his mind was occupied by some new fancy, which seemed to him to be of the utmost importance and to require prompt attention. He arrived in S one bitter cold night in the depth of winter and remained for the night with a family who had ever treated him kindly and with whom he had often lodged before. He set out early the next morning to proceed, as he said, on his way to Nova Scotia. Years have passed away, but the unfortunate man has never since been seen in the vicinity. It was feared by some that he had perished in the snow as there were some very severe storms soon after he left us, but nothing was ever learned to confirm the suspicion. According to his own statement, he belonged to the state of Vermont, but from his speech, he was evidently not an American. Several years have passed away since his last visit to us, and it is more than probable that he is no longer among the living. And The Unfortunate Man is a production of Phantasmagory, directed by Michael Treder and performed by Lee Marshall. And now on Ars Express. Thought they could trap us, but we can't fly. Wanted to leave us, but we said goodbye. They tried to rob us, but we're too poor. Incarcerate us, but we're the door. Hi, this is Jack Shalom for Arts Express. I'm talking long distance with singer-songwriter-activist Louise Dessertine in Montreal, Canada. Hi, Louise. Hi, Jack. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. I was led to you through poet Steve Bloom, and later I listened to some of your songs on YouTube, and I was so impressed by their power. Uh, I'm, I'm so you. glad to meet you. <laughs> and you, yeah, you I was impressed that you were impressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you write wonderfully uh, politically oriented songs. So I'd like to ask you one, how did you first begin writing songs and then why politically oriented songs? Well, I've been singing for a long time. I was just a, a singing in uh, a cappella groups, uh, world music, uh, with a, an amazing group for about 12 years called Ensemble Rubia. The, I started that in my early 40s. And uh, at some point, I decided to take on the challenge of writing a piece or two for the ensemble. At the same time, I was part of a poetry group uh, with a friend of mine, Catherine Beeman, 
and my poetry wasn't that great. But Catherine, you know, God bless her, she said, uh -huh. I think that's a song. She just kept hammering at me. And so I started putting some of my more poetic ideas into music. The first song I heard of yours was Put Your Red Dress On. And after I heard that, I felt like I had really heard something special and I knew I wanted to get in touch with you. How did you get the idea for that? I'm a psychologist and therapist and I work with mainly with multi-generational trauma. I've been working since the early 80s in mainly in indigenous communities in Quebec. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've been part of a much more collectively engaged group healings that have gone out and around Canada, uh, certainly Quebec, uh, since I would say 1990, since our famous Oka crisis in 1990. What a lot was that? of those, the Oka crisis was a, a land claim uh, confrontation in 1990, the summer of 1990, between okay. the Mohawks and the Quebec government, oh, dispute okay. over a golf course that wanted to be expanded into burial grounds. And it brought on oh. a three-month siege in Quebec. They brought in the army. It was it Oh, was my horrific. gosh. Oh. So the red dress, put your red dress on, has emerged out of the murdered and missing Indigenous women's inquiry that ended a year ago, June. And, uh, and so it was that kind of cry from inside of you know these different dresses that we wear dresses in some of the groups i've worked with are are used and worn for ceremony so uh -huh. the red dress became the symbol of the inquiry for the murdered and missing women so mm. that's where the the energy for that song came from put your red dress on take out your drum all our hearts will beat as one. The silent tales will be sung. We will not turn back time. Put your red dress on. Put your brown dress on. Roll up your sleeves. In distant fields and factories, high in steel towers, down on your knees to feed the ones you love. Put your brown dress on, put your blue dress on. Heave a sigh to the ocean's constant fury as we give life, see it take flight in a never ending way. Put your blue dress on. Put your green dress on, run among the trees, sweet fragrance of the air we breathe. And if they fall, we'll hear them wail. Our roots are all entwined. Put your green dress on, put your black dress on, walk behind the hearse to mark the day that became a curse. The faceless ones with us remain from a different time. They call our name, put your black dress on, put your white dress on, embrace the sky, among fireflies on a moonlit night, soft shimmering. 
Beneath the stars, we've come this far. Put your white dress on. Put your red dress on. Take out your drum. All our hearts beat as one. The silent tales will be sung. We will not turn back time. Put your red dress on. Put your red dress Oh. Is songwriting something that you um, you feel like you actively work at from day to day, or is it you get an inspiration? Let me follow that inspiration. No, no, it's definitely the latter. Every now and then, I think, oh, Louise, it's time to lay a lay a song, uh-huh. <laughs> lay an egg, lay a song. Yeah. Um, you say in French, "pondre une chanson," um, and <laughs> sometimes I'll wait a long time before I get an idea. Um, and it usually comes in the form of a a, a sentence and or a phrase. Um, it's and and that phrase always has an image with it. And a, another favorite one of your songs for me is uh, "We Are Life." What was the immediate impetus for that? I, I really liked it well, because it looks like it's going to go in one particular, I won't say sappy, but sort of in a sentimental way, but you really put a harder edge to it. And I really like that. Yeah, it, it's, it's a cry for the veneration of life itself in all its, in all its forms. Thought they could trap us, but we can fly. Wanted to leave us, but we said goodbye. They tried to rob us, but we're too poor. Incarcerate us, but we're the door. Began to infect us, but we're the germs On the road they pursued us, but we're the turns Try to suffocate us, but we are air Even can find us, but we're not there They thought they could break us, we bent like reeds Tried to bury us, but we're the sea us but we're the boot then they gagged us but we are mute wanted to find us but we are the rope scheme to divide us but we are hope they tried to silence us but we're
I just think it well for people that might be listening it's really important that you no matter what uh, how strange it might seem to you uh, if there's a muse inside that wants to come out uh, mine came out in my mid to late 40s I think you should follow it and see where it's going to take you because if nothing else you could have a lot of fun with it <laughs> oh, and if, at best you might touch a few other people <laughs> yeah yeah well that's great advice and i'm, I'm so happy I, I stumbled across your work thanks so much i'm happy to be talking to louise desertine you have a facebook page and reverb nation page thank you so much for your interest <laughs> i'm really touched by all this uh, yeah. oh, well, thank you thank you keep making music okay. take care this is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. We That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do Put it in our minds Surely things will work out They do it every time The world won't get no better If we just let it be The world won't get no better We gotta change it Just you and me Change again, change again, you're alone.